the most important thing you could share with me today is your perspective. Because the freedom of perspective fuels the logic we use to defend truth. We never stop fighting for freedom and truth, and that is what makes us Americans. Welcome to Critical Thought with Noah Chalaya. Radio 1310 KNOX 1079-1033 FM. Good morning. It is 90714 out as we make our way to a daytime high of 25. On the phone with me, Mayor of Grand Forks, Mr. Brandon Bochensky. Welcome in, sir. Great to be here. Thanks for making the time. We missed you last week, so it's good to have you back. Um no problem. Happy. Happy oh. to be here. Absolutely. 775-5559, that is the number to join us. You can call or text that same number. Email us live at KNOXradio.com. You're on the air with Mayor Bochensky. Good morning. Oh, you hung up. 775-5559, the number to join us. You can call or text that same number. Email us live at KNOXradio.com. We'd love to have you join our conversation. So, uh, Mayor, I want to dig into this uh, from the city council meeting last night. I want to start with uh, with snow with uh, snowmobiles. So, the city council had a this had an, a fairly intense discussion last night talking about snowmobiles and what that might look like. It is the police chief's job to designate a snowmobile path. Previously, that has been 42nd Avenue South. Last night we heard from the police department and they said, "You know, we're not thinking that 42nd is a safe road to use anymore for snowmobiles." And their suggestion was the Greenway. After that, what happened was a fairly spirited discussion on the advantages and disadvantages of having snowmobiles on the Greenway. The advantage being it's away from a lot of other places and traffic and is a safer route. The downsides being it creates additional noise and potentially is interfering to the people that want to use the Greenway for bird watching and those sets of activities. So I guess, Mayor, my question to you is what are your thoughts on where a snowmobile route should be? Well, I think. Probably the first thing is, do we do we need a snowmobile route that goes through the city? Um, that's probably for the first question. So we're talking, you know, north to south, and I think there's some advantages because if people are are passing through or snowmobile uh, riders or drivers, they that gives them the opportunity to you know come to town, whether it's to go to a gas station, you know, a bar, a restaurant, you know, it could be part of their route. Um, I think that's the first question. I mean, it's kind of goofy. This was set, I think, 25, 30 years ago. The city council really wanted it out of their hands because it was contentious back then. Um, so they put it in the police chief's hands, which is it's pretty unique under city code to have a decision like this be, you know, sent to a, an, you know, on an administrative decision, uh, more bureaucratic. So I, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to go see the exact route. I can definitely see that uh, people want to keep, um, you know, equipment away from the greenway as much as possible, and I'd like to see you know, another route, but that hasn't been, uh, hasn't been, hasn't come forward at least on, on where a decent route could be going north to south. So I want to dig into your comment about, do we need a snow, uh, a snowmobile route a little bit more? This was also brought up at the city council. Um, I believe it was Trisha Lunsky brought up, you know, Fargo doesn't allow this in their city. They just, they flat out don't allow snowmobiles. So the question has to be asked, should we? Well, I think we're a little bit more rural. 
I think we see a lot of usage of uh, UTVs. I mean, granted, they can use the streets and be street legal. Um, I think people enjoy the outdoors and, and they tend to, you know, I'm, I'm one, I enjoy UTVing. I think um, we're just a little bit more rural than Fargo is. And I, I see us as, as someone that would just use that type of opportunity more than, than people in Fargo would. And maybe I'm wrong. I guess that's where I'm at on that. Seven seven five fifty five fifty nine. That is the number to you can join us. The mayor would love to take your questions, your comments, your thoughts. You can call that number, text that number, email us live at KNOXradio.com. You're on KNOX with Mayor Bochensky. Good morning. Good morning. I want to give you some perspective on this. First of all, let me just say this. Because Fargo does or doesn't do something, that is an irrelevant comment when it comes to procedures. Every issue should be analyzed at where you're at and what you're doing uh, Fargo does plenty of things wrong. They do probably do some things right. But I, I, I said, I always chuckled when I sat up there and heard Fargo did this, so we shouldn't do it either. That's, I, that's I, not a reason. I don't disagree with you, sir. But what I would say is, I think there is some validity in if Mayor Bochensky's position is that right now Grand Forks is a little bit more rural than Fargo. Then the question has to be asked. Where does that line cross into where we're a large enough city where we would say that snowmobiles aren't appropriate? Or do we take a different position and say a city of any size snowmobiles are appropriate because it snows here nine months out of the year? And frankly, it's a better way to get around than a Corvette. Well, a couple of things on that. Number one, also, I find it interesting that the same people who are their downtown bobos don't want this one type of event to go on downtown. The word would be elitist. I just find it interesting. They're all about, and I once again in perspective, I watched the tens of gazillions of dollars poured into downtown, but they don't want these. There's a there's a road in front of their house. Cars make noise. Uh, we don't. I, I know you're being you're joshing, but as far as snowmobiles, they have a very limited time uh, as far as how long in a year you can use it. And they also, I don't buy. They're all going to be out there at three in the morning. I live in the country. I don't hear them out there at three. You know what? Most people work. Right. So you could write a law accordingly. You could have a midnight to six, whatever. I'll give you my, because I sat on a committee dealing with the Greenway, and I tried to get a snowmobile route through town on the Greenway. And I'm telling you, the resistance is 100% elitist. We don't want those people by our houses. That, that's, I'm cut right to the chase, right to the bone. That's what it is. And I just chuckle once again, uh, they all have a car, uh, cars passed. Of course, I could name some certain places where they're doing everything they can to try and keep cars off the road because apparently they think that's their road. But I, I, I totally disagree with this. It would, if you have a, a handful of abusers, here's the question I would ask. Do you punish everyone for a few or do you punish the lawbreakers and let people live with liberty? Okay, well, where would you put the snowmobile? Hold on. Where, where would you put the snowmobile route if not 42nd? Well, first of all, on a side note, I lived on the west end of town, had the snowmobile ride all around me, never bothered me. The riches don't bother me. The trains don't bother me. But then again, mm-hmm. I'm not a persnickety elitist. I also would say, yes, they should have a snowmobile route through this. If these Where? people want people to down on the Greenway, there's on no the cars greenway. there. Okay. It's, it's the perfect place. Yeah, like a, like a 10 below, there's this crowds of hundreds bird watching. Come on. Come on. I, I thank you for the call. I think you make a I think you make a point there. I mean, there are a limited amount of activities that you can do 
outdoors when it's 20 below zero, but snowmobiling is very much among them. Now, text messenger writes to seven seven five fifty five fifty nine. As a city employee, I'm very disappointed by the city council's rejection of a plan uh, for uh, for a salary plan study. I, we'll come back to that. So, um, Mayor, any additional follow up thoughts on? Let me ask you this: What are your thoughts on? You said it was a contentious issue, and I can understand why. Do you think that if Either the city council should be responsible for making this decision or the police should be responsible for making the decision. But this in-between thing where we put it on the police, but then they come and ask the city when they get on uncertain ground because they don't want to, I don't know, deal or handle the political pressure. And so they kind of put it back into the city council and now they've kind of kicked it back to the police and said, go come back with a different plan. Does it seem like we're kind of kicking a hot potato back and forth? It kind of reminds you of the bridge a little bit. No, uh, <laughs> we're going to get to that, uh, sir. <laughs> I know, so that's coming. We'll we'll take our time to get there. Um, you know, I think Terry probably was was on the council, and they probably had. You know, he like you said, they had these discussions, and I think other councilors back then wanted to pass the decision off to somebody else, and then could kind of work it behind the scenes. So, I I mean, I, you know, you've got a governing body that's selected to make decisions. I think you should have something proposed by PD. And uh, the city council can can make their decision whether to approve it or not. Right now, it's, they don't even have the the ability to approve it or not. An ordinance, the chief of police right. it, and that's that's what it is. So it was really information only. Um, but because it, you know, really it's become political. I think that's where the, the chief of police was just like, you know, forget this. I'm not going to have you know half the people against me have yeah. for this decision. So he'd rather pass it on to the governing board. But, so I, I do think you can make a tweak there. Yeah, I, I just I hear that, and I I, I say to myself, well. That's that situation doesn't change just because it's in the city council's hands. Right. And really what they determined is the same thing. The police determined that the safest, most logical place is to put it on the greenway. But the people on the greenway don't like that or around that area don't like that. So we're back at an impasse. I want it's it's yeah, it's not a I mean, having something that's a safety decision versus something that's a political decision is different. I mean, that is probably the safest place if you're just looking at car traffic, this, you know, pedestrian traffic it probably is safer to be on the greenway but that's where it doesn't you know it's more of a political decision so that's that's where i think the city council needs to be involved okay very good um 775-5559 that is the number to join us you can call or text that same number you can email us live at knoxradio.com we have the mayor of grand forks brandon bochensky lots of stuff discussed at uh the city council so I'll, i'll i guess i'll go back to this text message so as a city employee I'm very disappointed in the city council that they rejected the plan for a salary plan study. Brandon, can you tell us a little bit about what the plan for the salary, excuse me, what the salary plan study was about and why it was rejected? Well, there's two schools of thoughts. I think we, we all know that this salary plan after 20 plus years can, can be looked at and can be tweaked. Um, we've looked at uh, some type of a step plan, which, you know, some of the other uh, larger cities have. I think the school district has a version of that. Um, you know, that's where you kind of got to, every year you're going to progress through those steps. I mean, it's somewhat similar the way we do it now with ranges, but it would be more defined. Um, city council, there's some members there, especially in city council leadership, that's looking at looking at our current plan and trying to make some tweaks. I, I think the appetite, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful in some sense for, is as far as hiring consultants to try to get an answer that you, you pretty much already know. I don't like that, and I think that that's what the city council is trying to avoid. Um, but at the same front, um, you know, we, we want to look at this and make sure we've got, you know, a plan that makes sense for 
uh, city employees that they know there's a third party looking at it, that uh, they feel comfortable going forward, knowing where their salary progression is going to be. So how do we do that best is, is the question right now. And I think they wanted to talk a little bit more about it before they, you know, spend the 70 grand and hiring a consultant. Is a consultant necessary? I mean, I understand when you're talking about, uh, you know, a bridge or some sort of construction project or some sort of engineering thing that it oftentimes might exceed the scope of expertise of the people that we have on city staff. When it comes to salary, I have to ask, like, wouldn't it just be a what are what is the going rate for these positions, either in private industry or in other cities? And then do we want to drop a plan to get these people to where they need to be salary wise? Does that require a seventy thousand dollar study? Well, currently we survey other cities. HR does that. There's a bucket of other cities that we survey, and that's how we we get our ranges, uh, and then we develop midpoints from there. So we are surveying um, other comparable cities, and in North Dakota and other states in the region. Um, so we we already are doing that. Do, is it is it necessary to hire a, a consultant? I think it gives you a little bit more peace of mind if you know if you've had some um, you know issues with how your compensation uh, is handled, and you, you know you're constantly talking to HR. Having a third party come in that's independent, that's looking at it and saying, um, you know, this is comparable. This is probably where you should be at. I think gives people more peace of mind. Is it worth 70 grand? Um, I don't know about that. So to, to you, it's it's a function of maybe maybe the total amount is a little off there, but the general concept is it's better to be, you know, pound wise and, and instead of penny wise and pound foolish, if we spend a little bit money now, it, for the long-term investments of our city employees, then we know what we're doing is the right, right course of action. Well, I think people just, I mean, like I said, the city staff, they, they want to make sure they're being compensated fairly. They want to, you know, constantly have make sure that that's looked at and, and find, up, find something that's a, a solution that's fair. It's never going to be perfect, um, but it's something that we're going to continue to have to work with, especially uh, where workforce is and, and how competitive it is these days. We'll take the first break here, Madam Mayor Brandon Bochensky. When we come back, I'll ask you about the contracted parking RFQ, outsourcing the management of our parking structures. That's up next on News Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9 FM. Good morning. News Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9, FM. Good morning, 924.14. Out on the phone with me, the mayor of Grand Forks, Brandon Bochensky. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. So, Brandon, I want to I get in a little bit about uh, this contracted parking RFQ. So this came up last night. Essentially, parking structures downtown, they're looking at reorganizing them, but the city staff are saying, you know, we just don't have the expertise to make a decision on who should park where and for how long and how all of that works out. So they're looking at bringing in an outside agency. What are your th- first of all, is, is that an accurate summation of, of what they talked about last night? And then secondly, what are your thoughts on that? I think we need to get more out of our parking ramps. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, in Grand Forks, um, probably in North Dakota at large, maybe Fargo does it differently. Um, but probably Bismarck, probably Grand Forks, other Minot. We we just prefer surface parking. We don't you you don't utilize ramps. We prefer just to park park you know on the surface rather than having to go up 
several floors. So the ramps just do not get the usage that they, that they need. And it's maybe not the most efficient way. And now with the hotels being downtown, more apartments, it's starting to fill up more and more. <clears throat> We've got to look at how we can utilize those better. And instead of having a liability, have them be an asset where they can actually uh, produce some income, uh, do so in a fair way and make sure we've got the, the users, whether it's, you know, central high school hotel users, um, retail shoppers, that they've got access and, and probably at the right levels that they need um, within those ramps. 775-5559, the number to join us. You can call or text that same number. Email us live at KNOXradio.com. I'm inclined to agree with you, sir. Uh, when I pull up to a store, I have zero interest in driving into a parking garage, parking on some floor, then getting out of my car, walking down the same parking structure that I just drove up to get down to the entrance of the parking garage so that I can then walk out the door, walk down the street, back to the store I wanted to go in and then walk through the store. I mean, really, though, I'll just go to a big box store and go buy my stuff there because I can just stop the car in a parking spot, get out and walk into the store. It's simpler. And that's a generality. I mean, that's not everyone's going to be like that, but I think on the whole... That's what we prefer. So how do we find a, a better way to, to use these more efficiently? If you're someone that's parking, you know, more often in the ramps, does it make sense to have them on the top floors and mm. have a, a monthly pay structure? And then at least if the retail and the, sort of the in and outs that you've got, the, you know, the, the main level for that, how do we utilize? I think it's, it's not only going to look at the, the, you know, the ramps, but downtown in general and, and get the most out of the, the street parking as well. Obviously in, in the state of North Dakota, you can't do a metered, uh, uh, parking on the streets that's uh, right. um, in, in the century code but finding a way to, to, to best utilize it um, right now they're just looking uh, for a company that's that's going to give a proposal on it um, and again i think um, budgetarily it, it should be a, a net positive um, otherwise it's not something worth doing i mean if we're going to spend money mm. we can't get that recoup that and then some um, i wouldn't be in favor of it i like that Seven seven five fifty five fifty nine. you're on with the mayor of grand forks good morning Morning, guys. Hey there. Morning. Um, can I ask a different question? Sure. Hello? Hello? Yes, Are sure. You there? Yes, you can absolutely ask a different question. Good morning. Um, a couple of days ago, the Tribune had a quite a story on these Bitcoin companies, and uh, part of it was on the Bitcoin company here in Grand Forks. Those companies have all been flushed down the toilet now, but uh, apparently Grand Forks gave uh, several hundred thousand dollars to this company. Are we out of that money now? They've got, uh, they did come and ask for a loan from the growth fund, but that was never um, submitted. So they never received the funds. Um, that, that whole industry certainly is struggling. I know uh, that company is struggling as well. They're still operating. Um, they're still mining. They're still paying their bills. Um, so we'll have to see where the whole cryptocurrency thing uh, plays out. They're in the uh, crypto winter, I guess is what they call it. I've never been a, a huge fan of cryptocurrencies, but uh, you know, when it when it comes to to a business and one that's paying their bills, I think uh, you know the was willing to uh, you know do what they can. But in the end, uh, that loan was never um, you know, no no funds were dispersed, so we're uh, we're whole when it comes to that. And they've been paying their uh, franchise fees on, on electricity. So it's, it's a win regardless of whether or not the, you know, the company continues as a going concern. I love it. I would, I would be quick to point out that there is a difference between a mining company that is mining cryptocurrency and an exchange that willfully mishandled customer uh, funds. There's one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. So 
the FTX collapse absolutely caused a number of changes in the crypto world. It doesn't mean that crypto itself is bad or that companies mining it are bad. We'll take the news break here, get the latest out of Doug Barrett, and then get back to the mayor. That's next on Critical Thought. Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9 103.3 FM. Good morning. Welcome back. It is 938 and 14. On the phone with us, Mayor Brandon Bochensky. He, the mayor of Grand Forks. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Noah. So I want to dig a little bit into uh, bridges. Obviously, this was a huge portion of the, the city council meeting. Um, and, and it was really interesting to, to see such a straightforward discussion. Uh, Mayor S- Steve Gander joined, um, and I believe their council city president was also was also there for a little bit uh, and ha- had a very frank and, and honest discussion about the, the bridge. So the short version is there is a desire to tie two bridges together that they want to tie the inner city bridge along with the Merrifield bridge. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of debate to be had over the Merrifield bridge. People seem to sign off on that rather quickly. It's when we tie it to an inner city bridge that it becomes problematic. And part of the agreement was to move forward with the inner city or excuse me, the proposed idea from uh, Todd Feeland was to move forward with the intercity bridge and then, in his words, discover how we can move forward. So they, he kind of wanted just, hey, let's have a tacit agreement that, yes, we're going to do this and then we can figure out the how. And I have to be honest with you, it seems like it would be silly to try to plan an intercity bridge before we've actually made the decision if we even want to build an intercity bridge and cemented the location, which is a which is predicated on if you want to build the bridge. How can you ask somebody if they want to build a thing if you can't tell them where you want to build it? So it seems to me from third-party perspective, just a dude sitting there watching the meeting, that the discussion has kind of gotten out of order. It seems to me the order of operation would be, do we want to bridge? If yes, then we ask the question, or excuse me, where do we want to bridge if we were going to build one at all? Here, okay. Do we want to build a bridge and do it here? Yes, now we can progress forward and that did not seem to be the path that that city council took at all last night what was your thought of the discussion that occurred and where do we stand with an inner city bridge well first of all i've always been a supporter of the merrifield road bridge i think it's been 40 45 plus years now going since the last bridge was built um now we're, we're finally you know have some momentum to get a bridge down and we're going to try to do two um, I think that that's just kind of silly. I think we need right. to work to get the Merrifield one done and then see where we're at with traffic. We've got, you know, all these projections and they've got a lot of variables that had a lot of input from people who might've had interests in different bridges. So I, you know, I, I, it's great. The traffic studies, we, you know, you can use that, um, but you should have a somewhat of a grain of salt because of, of all the variables that go into it. Um, not having gotten a bridge done in four and a half decades, I think let's focus on one and just get it done. So I think the, the main goal is to make sure we're at least moving forward with that. Um, the, the whole idea around the consultant on it was that 
uh, let's get some numbers behind it. What's, what does this take um, financially? Are we going to get federal support? Are we going to get state support? Is an inner city bridge just going to have to be funded by the two cities? Because that really, to me, makes it an absolute non-starter. Mm. Um, if we are going to have funding um, where maybe it's a 20% share, um, then you know, is it worth looking further into? I think that's what uh, that study was going to look at. I'd rather just put all our eggs in, in Merrifield, get that done. Um, prove we can at least get one done instead of having uh, trying to push two bridges through. We end up with none, and 30 years from now, uh, we're looking back and, and still haven't gotten something done. So, uh, in an orderly manner, I think nothing's you know necessarily um, going to change um, at Elks or 32nd as far as on our side that mm-hmm. it's already built in. There might be increased traffic in the future, but the neighborhood's already there, so nothing's changing there. Let's get Merrifield done while it's you know largely you know undeveloped, um, so we don't have this problem in the future and see what kind of benefits we can get from, from that farm traffic and some, from some bypass traffic. So that's been my stance from the start. Um, you know, East Grand Forks really, you know, is interested in that, in that, you know, inner city bridge. Um, they, you know, they've done their studies thinking, you know, the number of hours that, that can be reduced from the, the, tra- the traffic and time in the car. Um, and I've always said, if, if you, you know, are on a route that you spend a lot of time in the car on, you can always move closer. You know, it's not an easy solution but moving to where you know you're not going to have to have a long transit um there's always an option there so that's still where i stand uh last night and in the council um you know it was largely the same um uh consulting plan that it was previously Mm -hmm. um, but i think the focus was just to to get some of that data so we can can make a further decision like i said i'd rather just focus on merrifield work with the counties and get that done so we're not 30 years looking at the same problem. 775-5559, you're on with Mayor Bochensky. Good morning. Good morning. Happy, happy, terrific Tuesday, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you. We had a great ward meeting on uh, November 9th with the two wards, four and three, uh, Council Members Lunsky and Weber at Phoenix, and it was fantastic. There was over 40 people, and there was a great talk and ideas about bridges. I'd say 60% of the meeting was probably about bridges and traffic, and I think I'd like to see more of that, and it was very civil. People raised their hands. They had more than three minutes. They could get their ideas out and what they wanted and what they didn't want, so I encourage you, Mr. Mayor, to encourage the other uh, wards to get uh, get busy and have their meetings. And it was like about a little over two hours long. And it was a, just an excellent place to have get ideas and what the taxpayers want and what we don't want. Thank you, and I'll listen. Thank you. Appreciate the call, yep. sir. 775-5559, your calls are welcome, your questions, your thoughts. In uh, your questions for Mayor Bochensky, we're talking about the bridge, and so the two choices for the, you know, the um, the inner city bridge would that were talked about was Elks and Thirty Second. It's interesting, Mayor, that you say you would vote or you your support would be behind getting Merrifield done, and then we can go back and revisit the inner city bridge. In fact, uh, Dana Sandy brought something very similar like that up and said, you know, if we just took a vote on doing Merrifield, we could probably just get that out of the way and start that process. And then we, if there was an appetite to go back to the city, uh, inner city bridge, we could do that. 
it seems like there is an appetite among some to keep those two tied together. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's, it's it just relates to traffic. And I think right where they had that ward meeting at, at Phoenix Elementary, that's that's kind of the crux of the issue right there. And how do we relieve some of that pressure to, to make sure it's the safest environment for kids? So um, that's, you know, I think the biggest push for our side. I think on the east side, uh, you know, there's more to do with, with commerce and, and, you know, wasted time. So I, it's not that I don't see it. I just think the ship sailed in a lot of ways um, already on our side of the river for that bridge. And, mm. Um, I don't want to see indecision in the future, um, you know, causing that or indecision now, causing that problem in the future um, at Merrifield as we develop down there. Uh, looking at 32nd and Elks, I think there's a little bit more, um, a little bit more palatable for some at Elks, but I, I still think the traffic that would cross there, it's either going to have to go north or south, 24th or 32nd. So you're, you're you, you know, I don't know if you're eliminating, you might eliminate the, the eyesore of the, the bridge being there and cutting through a neighborhood, but the traffic's still going to go there. So, I think their Elks is a little bit more palatable, but like I said before, I think having been so long since the bridge has gotten done and talked about to death, um, I think just focusing on getting that first one done instead of tying together and ended up end up failing on two, let's at least get the, the one done that's not contentious. Would Merrifield reduce traffic in town? If we built a bridge at, Mer- at Merrifield Road, would that decrease the amount of traffic coming over the Point Bridge and people going north? Well, I mean, every car that uses it would have to have had passed somewhere else. So, right. um, granted, they could be going further, you know, coming from further south. But um, as a bypass in general, I think it's going to help. Uh, farm traffic out, I think it's going to help. Um, it'll relieve, uh, you know, if you've got people that are trying to get to the Minnesota side to go to lake cabins or to travel to, to the northern part of Minnesota, you're going to certainly have that traffic, especially in the southern half of Grand Forks. So, it will certainly relieve some pressure. I mean, to say it's not going to relieve any um, would be untrue. And uh, you know, developing mm. some some routes for um, farm traffic, I think, um, would be good too. And no, I don't think you want to drive a full beat truck right. at harvest time through de- on Demers. I think if you had to yes. spend an extra few minutes and you could 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 go around, you, you probably would. If you built the bridge and saw what the actual not a speculation, not a model, but actually saw what the difference in traffic was, then could you go back and revisit an inner city bridge? I would think you could. Well, you at least have real data, not, not right. sort of a, a you know speculative, um, yes. you know, based on a lot of variables that you've yourself set that that may or may not have been set for a, you know an answer that you want, and that's what the worry would be on the traffic studies that are currently existing. Right, and frankly, could change. Right, I mean, this is potentially six years out. So let, let's talk about the study a little bit. So the the study would be one hundred and fifty one thousand dollars. The talk right now is to split that four ways, so that puts. Grand Forks on the hook for like $40,000-ish. Your thoughts on spending $40,000 to get a better idea of what an inner city bridge or the effects of an inner city bridge might be? If it's based on just finding out what the financial cost is going to be, if we're going to be able to get federal funding, I think there's some value to it. I just think there's been so many studies done, whether it's hydraulics, right. whether it's, um, you know, I don't know how many studies have been done, but it's been studied to death. And then you end up, uh, you know, the study's too old. So you got to get another one done. And this would hate to see more taxpayer money uh, going to that when we've got, if let's, and I think largely the council agree is we've got agreement mm. on Merrifield Road. Granted, it's in the county. Let's just put money towards getting that one done. Um, if it's, if you can, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's in parallel, if you can get, you know, uh, your data back, 
um, on Merrifield and the other ones at the same time, and you're only you know it's incrementally small, and it can give you some more information mm-hmm. for the future. Sure, if it's process related, um, but I don't know where that breakdown is. So I, you know, in some sense, I'd rather not even bother. Yep. Well, we're going to find out because going, they're they're going yeah. back to the consulting firm and they're going to ask for a quote just for Merrifield Road. We'll take the last break here. We'll wrap it up with the mayor next. This is Critical Thought on KNOX. Radio 1310 KNOX 1079-1033 FM. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Coming up on 1054, on the phone with me, Mayor Brandon Bochensky. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. 775-5559, the number to join us. You can call or text that same number. Email us live at KNOXradio.com. You're on with Mayor Bochensky. Good morning. Morning, UND 3 years guy. Hey. Yeah, Mr. Mayor, uh, UND missed out last weekend uh, to bring some people to town spend some money to have a playoff football game, University of North Dakota. From what I read, the University of North Dakota outbid Weber, Weber State by $100,000 to host a playoff football game. It got rejected. You know, at the time when we uh, still had the fighting student nickname, the NCAA said you could keep the nickname, but you can't host any uh, NCAA-sanctioned games. Well, here we outbid them by $100,000. They still don't give us a playoff, a playoff game. Uh, we should have kept that suit, suit nickname. Uh, this is, uh, in the sports world, a lot of people are talking about this, of why the NCAA uh, screwed over UND. Uh, so I th- Go ahead. I, well, we're just we're running close to the top of the hour. Mary, your yeah. thoughts? Well, obviously, I was a fighting Sioux when I played here, and, and, and you know, I thought the nickname uh, was very respectful, very honorable, and I you know, the NCAA made their decision, but I think a lot of that was driven locally. As far as the uh, actual losing that game, I mean, we, we did host a game last year. It was tough uh, to not get that one this year, uh, especially looking at the way they said it had to do with, um, you know, play on the field and maybe the record. But that wasn't the case for the other, uh, I can't remember which team it was, uh, another Missouri or Montana team uh, was quite the opposite. There was a team that has a 7-4 and record that hosted a 9-2 and team. So, it didn't seem to be applied equally to all the games. So that was really disappointing. And, you know, it would be nice to have an answer then a little bit more clearly as to why we didn't get it. A couple things I want to go uh, just rapid fire here if we can. Uh, parking lo- Text messenger says, parking lot by hope is terrible. Is there anything the city can do about that? That's kind of, you know, in the same paradigm as the, the mall when mm. it's privately owned like that. Um, you know, if it's not, uh, you know, an actual safety hazard it's and it just aesthetically looks bad. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can do. You know, you can obviously work with them and, and you know, ask them what their long-term plan is and, and getting it cleaned up, but that's about, you know, the limits at this point. Text messenger asks for an update on the blue light situation. Uh, the I think they're referring to the street lights. Oh, they're not talking about the Kmart special. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, there, yeah, it's like I said, it's it's going to be probably a six- to nine-month process. They've got to take the lights out. They've got to send them back in, and apparently there's a tweak that they can do to the current ones that get them. Um, you know, to the right spectrum. Um, so that's it's going to be a you know a process throughout uh, the winter and next summer uh, to get them replaced. But they are in process of being replaced. So you'll see as as it, as it goes, there'll be you know sections that are, are changing 
uh, back to the the white light that we're all used to. Text messenger asks if there's any update on Fufung. I might up, I might amend that question to say, have you heard anything from the CFIUS review? No, it's been disappointing. The the federal government, uh, you know, has worked really slow, but uh, we haven't. Uh, you know, it's been. I think we're getting close to 45 days, so they will have to respond, and likely they'll they'll extend it for 45 days. So we'll kind of be uh, left without a, a conclusion on that front, uh, probably for another month and a half to two months, but uh, we could be surprised uh, come next week and have an answer. Text messenger asks, will you let the mayor talk? Was there something you wanted to say that I didn't let you say? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so today, but uh, I don't know. I think today's been, well, we've been good. I've enjoyed, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's anything else that we missed today from the council meeting last night um, that I can think of. So, Mayor Brandon Bochensky, he joins us every Tuesday at 9 a.m. I continue to be thankful for your time, sir, particularly even when you can't make it into the studio. You still make the time to join us, answer questions, uh, and, and take questions from people. We appreciate it, sir. We'll catch up with you again next week. Yeah, thank you. Looking forward to seeing you in person again next week. Take yes. care all. Yes, sir. Have, have a great rest of your day. All right, that will do it uh, with our time with the mayor. Coming up, we're going to talk about police chases in Grand Forks. Andrew, uh, excuse me, Attorney General Drew Wrigley thinks sentences should be contributing to a rise in police chases and changes are needed. That's up next on News Radio 1310, KNOX 1079, 1033 FM. Good morning. Radio 1310 KNOX 1079-1033 FM. Good morning, 1007 and 15 out as we make our way to a daytime high of 25. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this morning. North Dakota Je- uh, Attorney General Drew Wrigley believes weak sentences are contributing to the rise of police chases and says changes are needed to fix it. Wrigley has spoken with members of law enforcement across the state who told him police pursuits are at levels they've never seen before. Wrigley largely attributes the increase in fleeing vehicles to the likelihood that those convicted will not receive additional jail time. As Wrigley advocates for mandatory jail time, the issue of police pursuit gains attention across the state. So our question to you today at 775-5559, do you think that police should chase people who flee? And if caught, would you support mandatory jail time for them? I have to tell you, this is an easy one for me. This is a fairly easy one for me. I understand that there is a level of safety that comes into the play when you make a decision whether or not to pursue somebody. But at the end of the day, we're either a nation of laws or we're not. And it's the exact same argument I would apply towards the border. You either have a law or you don't. You either enforce the law or you don't. It isn't a gray, it isn't a gray area. It's it's a white or black thing. So why you know, in the border situation, it's very sad to think that there are people that have traveled, I don't know how how many miles, to get to a better life and to have to turn them away. That's a hard, terrible thing to have to do. But if you want to live in a country with laws, 
that's what you do. You make a, a hard and difficult decision to turn those people away. When somebody is driving 85 miles an hour down Washington or down 32nd or down Demers and a police officer pulls up behind him or her and turns on the red and blue lights signaling a pullover, everybody that's been through driver's uh, education or even if you haven't, you sat for the driver's test and have a driver's license knows that that means you're to pull over to the side of the road and await for the emergency vehicle to either pass you or come up and approach you and initiate a traffic stop. Full stop. That's what that that's what the red and blue lights mean. So if you have somebody that in the face of a law enforcement officer pulling up behind him, turning on the red and blue lights, hits the accelerator, we've got a big, big, big problem. Now, I get that there's a safety concern here. I get that when somebody's going 85 miles an hour down you know, a residential street, a decision has to be made. First of all, do we think we can actually catch this person? Because if the answer to that question is no, then I suppose it does make then I suppose it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to go pursue them if you thought they were going to get away. But there's an old saying in law enforcement, you can't outrun a Motorola. And the idea there is you don't necessarily one police officer doesn't necessarily have to outdrive the guy in front of him or girl in front of him or her. All they have to do is relay their location to wherever the next officer is. And enough of a show of force, and you should be able to bring any vehicle to rest. Now, the question becomes, and I would be interested in your thoughts at this at 775-5559, at what cost? At what cost? Because there is a, there's absolutely the possibility exists that if you increase the penalty, if somebody gets caught fleeing from the police, or if you just tell police, when somebody runs from you, you go hunt them down. And arrest them and put them in jail so that they can never do that thing again. And, oh, by the way, whatever the initial crime was that they were running for in the first place, because I'm guessing it's not a speeding ticket. You have to be prepared then in that situation to accept a car may inadvertently wind up in your living room or through a storefront or mow down a kid or kill a pedestrian. All of those things come into play. So we have to have hard answers to those questions before we can form an opinion on what we want to do at the attorney general's level. And, oh, by the way, it's worth noting or it's worth asking. It's interesting to me that this comes all the way from the North Dakota attorney general. This isn't a conversation that is, you know, springing up out of a particular city that has a particular concern. It's coming essentially from the top down. I want law enforcement officers to take this seriously. Now, to Attorney General Andrew Drew Wrigley's credit, When he looked under the hood, what he found was most law enforcement officers and most cities struggle with this problem. And we absolutely struggle with this problem in Grand Forks. I have a scanner. I listen to it every night. I'm fully aware of how many people try to, well, not try to, flee from Grand Forks Police Department. Grand Forks Police happens right here all the time. They are. According to the Grand Forks Police Department, police pursuits were on a slow but a steady incline from 2019 to 2021. Last year, there were 34 police pursuits, but those were only but there were only 20 as of November 22nd of this year. Although Lieutenant Andrew Stein says the Grand Forks Police said pursuit numbers have trended up in the last eight to 10 years. Your thoughts at 775-5559. Do you think police should 
chase people who flee, and if caught, do you think that there should be mandatory jail time? You're on KNOX. Good morning. On this question, though, I'd say there, there will be some limited circumstances where you might let them go, but I want to bring this up. Number one, you don't know why they're driving that way. Right. They could be speeding, or they just could have committed a violent crime. You don't know. So that's what, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, by just blankly saying we're not going to chase people, you encourage people to uh, right. not pull over. Number three, if you blankly say you're just not going to go, then what crimes in the future does this person going to commit because he got away because he chose not to? What yes. if he goes out and murders someone? He's on his way to murder someone, and you could have stopped him, but he picked up the speed a little bit. So, so I get there might be rare circumstances, but I'd also want to see the data of the number of people injured and killed. And there are some, I don't disagree with that, over the course of 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Sure, they're going to be some, but uh, once again, what's the, what's the ramifications if we don't do it? Yes. And then in closing to your point is, there's a simple, and see, this is where I'm going to differ for some of the people that I am, I have one view on some of the nonviolent crimes, uh-huh. but on violent or potentially violent crimes, I, we've got to get off of this sympathy note. They're a criminal. Right. When you go down the road driving like that, if, if, if you took your firearm out and just started shooting randomly, would you get the same treatment? Would you, hey, we better not, better not deal with him. We better just let him, just better let him walk down the street and, and maybe we'll wait till he, his magazine runs out or, or whatever. No, they're coming to that. We're letting these people commit these crimes. Yes. They know they can get away with it. If we, if we go down to where we let more and more people go, we need to start dropping the hammer. And it's not the police. And you know this. Yeah. The problem isn't the police. It's the problem is the judges. We got a bunch of judges, including in North Dakota, who are liberals, who don't believe in the judicial system, who don't believe in uh, restitution, who don't believe in punishment. They want to let them go. Right. It, it's this, this what we're doing. In our judicial system is sweeping the country. And what we have is a whole lot of people who care more about criminals than they care about victims or potential victims. I appreciate the call. Excellent points all around. 775-5559. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Hi. Say, I'm currently in law enforcement, 35 years, prison through the ranks, not in Grand Forks. I'm in a city probably three times the size, but I'm from okay. Grand Forks, so I follow it. Sure. And in the past three or four years, it seemed to be in the local media, there were pursuits nonstop. Mm-hmm. And some were for as simple as a speeding violation or a not lit license plate so it's a balancing act is the crime that you're pursuing for worth the life of your neighbor's child because that's ultimately what happens in the city if there's a crash and somebody dies the victims don't sue the perpetrator because generally they don't have any insurance or money they'll sue the city Mm -hmm. And is it worth it just because somebody was going eight miles an hour over the speed limit and failed to stop? And the other side of the coin is the police officers who chase for minor infractions either are smaller cities who don't have a good pursuit policy or they're Mm -hmm. newer officers that don't know how to turn off that immediately adrenaline, I'm going to catch the guy. Right. And that that takes five to ten years to, to learn that skill. 
and that's why you see police overreacting. And if, if a police officer gets punched in the face, they only have enough, can use as much force as necessary to affect the arrest. But you see them overreact because you can't, you don't know how to control your adrenaline. It's a learned skill, or maybe your body picks it up. But it's not anything immediate. So that all those factors need to be played. So to answer your last caller's mm-hmm. point, we do pursue people who have made threats to kill people if there is a legitimate or a verifiable fact. So you would advocate, you would advocate though, you know, emphasizing law enforcement's discretion not to pursue a chase if that officer believes that more harm than good is going to come from it. Well, I think that's the supervisor's role. They're the okay. ones who ultimately tell them to stop pursuing it. It's you generally the patrol sergeant's responsibility to monitor their pursuit, not necessarily be in it. And they'll call it off on the danger. For instance, if somebody on Black Friday South Washington's pursuing somebody at 80 miles an hour at 11 in the morning, that's unreasonable and unrealistic unless they have just committed a crime of violence. And, you know, then it's a little different if they yeah. killed somebody, raped somebody, maybe committed a bank robbery where they displayed a weapon. All those factors playing a role, but I do agree with what you guys just talked about. The courts need to start backing police departments as far as penalizing these people. And if not, I say take away their driving privileges forever, minimum Mm -hmm. one year in jail, what have you. Fines don't seem to work because, in my experience, the people who flee. Are generally don't have money to pay fines, and it's a revolving right. circuit of going to jail because they get warrants because they can't pay the fine. So let's just have them sit out the time. I stand behind Drew Wrigley 100% on this. we got to get tougher on it, but that doesn't mean we chase because, just because somebody's running. Hey, I appreciate the call. In fact, uh, I- that was critical thought. That's my favorite call of the day so far. We're only two hours in. But the idea to separate the chase from the the enforcement mechanism makes a whole lot of sense to me. Makes a whole lot of sense to me because, first of all, there are ever-increasing ways that we have the opportunity to come into contact with the people that break the law. So it's not like if you let them go one time, you don't pull them over right then and there on the spot, that you lose the opportunity to prosecute them. The reality is you probably have, at a minimum, you have their license plate. At most... You have things like airplanes or you have other enforcement mechanisms where you can go collect information now at a safe time of your choosing. I mean, we could excuse the analogy here, but we can take a play out of China's playbook, let them go in the moment and then go quietly snatch them later. You can absolutely do some of that. Appreciate the call. We'll take the break here. Continue next. This is Critical Thought on KNOX.
News Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9, FM. Good morning. Welcome back. 1039 and 17 out. The phone number 775-5559. That is the number to add your voice to the conversation. Become a part of the program. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Hello? Going once. That's you. Going twice. Thanks for the call. 775-5559. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Good morning, Noah. See, I've got a question. What do you think about the band director being arrested for having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl down in Fargo? Yeah. One more year, it would have been legal if, if she was 18. When I was in high school a few years ago, I remember two girls that wanted to get pregnant and have a baby at age 12. And they mm-hmm. did. And is it okay if both people in a relationship are about the same age, say maybe 16 or 17? See, here's I'll the... Hang up yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question. I it's And it's a valid question. The reality is... I think so. There's there's a couple things that play in, into there. So the first thing is, I do agree with you that at 17 years old, you are capable of making a decision on who you want to be in a relationship with. Just full stop. I just I think the age of consent should be earlier than 18 because I think people earlier than 18 make that decision all the time, and it's kind of ridiculous that somebody who is 17 years old can't decide to be in a relationship with somebody that's 40 years old if that's what they want to do. I don't think they're I don't think at 17 years old you're going to coerce or force or whatever. I just I don't buy it. That said, there is a power dynamic when you have a teacher. So if it wasn't a student, if it was just a dude who happens to work as a teacher and met a girl who happens to be 17, I would have a different approach than I would if the girl is a student because there's a power dynamic that you that can't be ignored. And so the problem isn't maybe in this case, it was perfectly consensual. But what happens next time when it's not consensual or that line is blurred and it's just it's too difficult to get into. And then on top of that, you have an, an age disparity. But I would agree. I it, it doesn't sit right with me that two consenting people can engage in a thing. And then the court comes in and says, actually, that wasn't that wasn't consensual. Well, if that's the case, we probably need to change the age at which people can consent because, yeah, I that's my thought on it. And I, I didn't dig into it a whole lot. I read the story. Didn't seem like there was a whole lot there to discuss. But yeah, that's my thoughts on it. Seven, seven, five, fifty, five, fifty nine. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Uh, regarding Terry's comment about the liberal judges, yeah. why is there no recourse for a, a judge handing a light sentence when he's not following the rules or the the law as it's written, and he's coming up with his own version of it? That's a really good question. I, I guess what I would answer that by saying we give judges almost unlimited power. And the idea there is that when you go into a court, there no two cases are the same and you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. So the rationale is if we allow judges judicial discre- discretion, they when people sit in their courtrooms, they can then make the decision, hey, this this requires the full force and weight of the law to be hammered down on this person, and this person deserves some slack. I mean, I saw that in my own home county where the judge typically le- uh, tended to be more lenient on people, uh-huh. even if they're a re- repeat offender. But he has. There's no recourse against him. It's just like uh, he's immune to any damages or punitive or you know whatever. It's 
not right. I mean, the 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 citizens of that county were just are just were just frustrated. With him, mm-hmm. But he kept getting voted back in. I mean, there was no there was no legal recourse against him. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a legal recourse, right? Is you primary? Well, I guess you don't have a primary for a judge, but you vote that person back out. You find the next person that will enforce the law, and you put them in. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunate, though, you don't have enough mm. people. Like, look at Haley Wamstead. We're dealing with her. And mm-hmm. She gets reelected. Mm-hmm. You know, and what is she doing for us? No, I, 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 your point is well taken. Your point is well taken. If a judge is there to make sure the law is upheld. So anytime you have somebody, I thank you for the call. Anytime you have somebody that comes into a courtroom and sits down and a judge decides not to enforce the law or hold somebody accountable to the law, really what that judge is doing is a disservice to all of the other people who did obey the law and trusted that the law that was on the books would be upheld and would protect them against the action of of the criminal. So I I understand where you're coming from. I would just be I would stop short of saying we should require judges to enforce the law as it's written all the time. I think judicial discretion is a really good thing and I had the opportunity to go attend a couple of court cases when I was in college and sit through that process. And I will tell you, my takeaway was in the state of North Dakota, you basically get a do-over. I mean, unless you really do something bad, you more or less get a do-over. And you go in front of a judge and you're like, hey, listen, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. That was really dumb. Give me a second chance. Nine out of ten times, the judge goes, okay. And then that's the end of it. And as long as you don't screw up again, you're fine. Uh, and I watched some crazy, crazy stuff. There are people go in there, they like negotiate when they're going to go to jail. It blew my mind. They're like, oh, I work, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, and then I've got my kid every other weekend. So could I do jail like every other Saturday? And she goes, oh, that seems reasonable. I'm like, really? You can do that? I was not aware. 775-5559. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Well, I would say lots of times it's how much you can pay your attorney than it is the actual judge involved. <laughs> right. Um, I would think I would think the attorneys have a lot of say in this. I think people leave that, you know, leave that part of the equation out. Um, the better attorney you have, usually the better deal that you're going to end up with. And it's sad for people that have to have public defenders or public pretenders, as they're oftentimes called in the industry, because they oftentimes work very, very hard because they have a multitude of cases and um, don't always um, end up being able to afford to spend the amount of time needed to make sure that all those clients get what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other piece of it is, is so, for example, I, you know, I don't know if you can say it's necessarily a liberal judge looking at, for example, do you remember that doctor? Um, he was the guy that was the swimmer. can't remember which college it was. It was over on the East Coast somewhere. He raped a girl. Um, all the evidence was there that he raped her or sexually assaulted her, whichever term you want to use. Um, I think he got three months in jail, maybe, if that was even what it was. And the judge said he had to have a light sentence because he had so much going for him as a swimmer. So we couldn't be hard on him because we don't want to ruin his swimming potential and his swimming career. Uh, But yet he could go ruin this girl's life. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about a college student, right? 
Yep. Yeah, this was it was in uh, it was in California. And he and it was it was if I remember right, it was a fairly brutal rape. And you're right. They came back. The, the answer came back out. It was like, well, if we prosecuted him, it could damage his swimming career. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, it's I mean, who knows how they how they think what they think or how they do what they do. But the whole system is is completely unfair. Hell, in in North Dakota, you can drive drunk and kill somebody and spend maybe nine days in jail. It's sickening. Hell, you can get by with spending no time in jail sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Again, North Dakota is pretty good about giving people second chances. Um, and, and again, as, as, as unpopular as it might be in this particular discussion, I'd be inclined to say that's a good thing in general. I thanks for, thank you for the call. 775-5559. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, your previous caller sounds like she's pretty familiar with the uh, uh, judicial system there, uh, It'd be interesting to find out uh, her background. Uh, uh, again, uh, you're doing a good job. I agree with almost everything you're saying. I think that uh, when a judge or when a person is charged with a crime, if it's mandatory sentence, I think judges have to go by it. Yeah. Uh, anything else, I think, is discretionary. But if it's a mandatory sentence, I, I don't think they have leeway to to uh, alter it. So in this case, what uh, Attorney General Drew Wrigley is suggesting is that they have a mandatory sentencing guideline if a judge wishes to not, uh, you know, enact that sentencing guideline, then they have to have a written response as to why that case is different and justifies an exception. Yeah, see, now that just opens up a can of worms Mm. for everything. If you do this crime, here's the time you're going to do, period. Don't do the crime. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate the call. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you there. It would be a lot simpler if we just said, if you do this thing, this is what's going to happen. The other thing I have to ask is if you open it back up to say, you know, under some extremely limited circumstances, we allow you to make an exception. Well, have we not just kind of undercut what we sought out to do in the first place by imposing a minimum sentence so that we make sure all of these people, there is a there is a firm deterrent to fleeing from law enforcement? The discussion, it continues next right here on Critical Thought News Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9 FM. Good morning. Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9 FM. Good morning. It is 11.07, 19 out. We make our way to a daytime high of 22. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you. Samuel Rose says he was raised by a devoted single mom who wanted, who warned all of her seven children to avoid drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. But when his high school friend urged him to try vaping with a Juul e-cigarette five years ago, Rose figured there was no danger. Vaping, after all, was billed as a healthy alternative to smoking. Daily vaping made his lungs feel too small to power him down the football field. He worked 30 hours a week after school, largely to fund his vaping habit. 
Though a miner, he was able to easily purchase replacement e-cigarettes and cartridges and pods from young adults at his church who could buy them legally. The small device and the vapor clouds that were emitted were easy enough to hide. Still, he says, the escalating addiction scared him and he didn't like who he was becoming. Today, 14.1% of all high school students say they vape. But despite the rapid rise of nicotine use, the regulatory response has been slow. So our question to you at 775-5559 this morning, do you think that teen vaping is a problem that requires oversight from the FDA? One of the things that has frustrated me about this conversation since literally the get-go is we start off with a predetermined destination and agenda in mind, and then we kind of backpedal to get there. And it's the wrong approach. It absolutely is the wrong approach for a couple of reasons. First of all, the integrity of any sort of discussion is lost if you've already made up your mind. Nobody wants to argue or have a discussion with a brick wall. It's neither effective nor is it productive in any sort of way. It's, it's an exercise in frustration. If the goal has already been determined and the destination has already been determined and we're just talking about how to get there, that's it's it's like fly fishing with it's like a catch and release stream. I mean, you, you there's no payoff at the end. Seven, seven, five, fifty five, fifty nine. You're on KNOX. Good morning. For COVID, most of our deaths were people that smoked or had smoked. Cigarettes are bad. Vaping's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government makes money on the taxes. Never a lot. They promote it. Yep. So let's break that down a little bit. Is inhaling air better than anything else? If you don't have any cigarettes or vaping, yes. Is vaping worse than inhaling air? Is it less safe than just inhaling regular air? Probably. Is vaping better than smoking a traditional cigarette? A hundred percent it is. No, no, it ain't. There's studies that say it's just as harmful. Okay, so I agree that there might be some shared harm, but I'm hard-pressed to understand how when you take water vapor and mix it with nicotine, turn it into, in you know, essentially steam and inhale it, how that can be as dangerous as tar and all of these things. I had family members that smoked. I saw what came out of cigarettes, and I've seen what comes out of vape pens. It's, again, I'm not... I guess I'm not terribly educated on the subject and I've not in detail reviewed the research, but it sure seems to me that vaping is a vastly superior option to traditional smoking. It is better. If you ever go to the Man in Nature Museum and see the lungs that people have smoked, my goodness. Yeah, you'll, you'll, black. You'll, you'll throw, you'll throw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I lost my mom, my dad, my stepdad, and a lot of sister and a bunch of relatives that smoked because... You know, it was it wasn't harmful, mm-hmm. and we knew it. They knew it back then. They coughed and coughed and choked, so they you know you couldn't even go to church because you coughed through the whole service. <laughs> but yet, somehow, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. And the government just doesn't out a lot. I got a second thing about the railroad strike. Okay, just listening to the news, I figured out how to end it. Okay, uh, you Amtrak gets one point four billion dollars. Oh, you don't get no subsidized till this is over. Mm. That'll be a strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know you got to you got to play hardball with them. You know, yeah, they're getting twenty four percent raise, two thousand dollar bonus, but you want sick time? Okay, give them some sick time. Give them ten days a year, whatever. Mm-hmm. Settle it. Be done with it. 
but uh, you don't have you shouldn't have to get the government involved. And if we do, then let's take away your subsidies, one point four billion dollars. Right now, you now you guys can figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I appreciate the call. If you want to do it with your own money, absolutely. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, so getting back to this teen vaping thing, inhaling air is better than anything else. I would articulate to you that vaping is worse than inhaling air, but better than smoking. And if you want evidence of that, or if you want to look how that's playing out in, pra- in practice, we can look over at the UK. In the EU, this is far less polarized than it is here in the U.S., and it's interesting to note that health professionals over on that side of the pond are taking the approach of finding people who are smoking and trying to get them into vaping as opposed to preventing people from vaping or a campaign to try to discourage people from vaping. To them, there's no point in coming after vaping until you've eliminated smoking because smoking is the greater harm. Now, there's the again, there's the libertarian inside of me that says rational thinking adults should be able to make that decision for themselves. But if you're going to make a central on high decision and, and force it down, it should reflect what we know to be true. And what we know to be true is vaping is less harmful than smoking. So it seems to me it's premature to go after vaping products and try to heavily regulate vaping until you first transitioned all of the people that are smoking onto a better alternative. But what are your thoughts? 775-5559. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Is it is it vaping for minors or just vaping for adults? Because there's two different answers to that question. No, I agree. Unfortunately, the FDA has decided to tie the two together. So they're claiming that this is to go after kids. But, oh, by the way, I might draw to your attention to the fact that kids under 18 can't purchase vaping products. So really what we're talking about, if we're talking about FDA oversight, is vaping products for adults. They can say it's for kids, but that doesn't really – that's a lie. And, and that's my point. If it's a minor, uh, once again, you don't need the federal government. Yep. Uh, states and, and – Counties, towns, whatever. It's already illegal. Uh, they, they can, they can, yeah. So the, the issue with minors, it, if it's illegal everywhere, then it's the issue's been addressed. Mm. It's all, it's, it's done with. Yep. They are, if they are vaping, if they're seventeen year olds and they're vaping, they're a criminal. Mm-hmm. They're committing a crime. Yep. See, so what, what's there to study? They're not supposed to be doing it. Exactly. So the the issue there should be is, how much do you want to enforce it? Yes. And we don't need the because federal government's help for that either. We're perfectly capable that's of... Not, that's not a federal crime. You, you didn't kill somebody dragged across state lines. Right. No. The, the FBI, maybe they could put a few more guys on Hunter's laptop, and maybe <laughs> we can get that resolved within a 10-year time period. Uh, I digress. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the answer is already taken care of as far as minors. And then the adults, okay, that's a separate question. And, and, and once again, uh, frankly, hasn't cigarettes pretty much... That's been answered is uh, about the only place you can smoke anymore is in your car and in your house mm-hmm. or your yard or whatever. So, frankly, if they want to regulate vaping, uh, and once again, cities and states could do that. They could, they could uh, at that level, uh, regulate where it could be done or not be done because mm-hmm. they, sm- they do it with smoking. So, uh, once again, the answer is federal government, go away. I mean, I believe with this quote from Ronald Reagan, the scariest words in the English language. I'm here from the government, and I'm here to help. (laughs) I like it, sir. I appreciate the call. Yep. 
775-5559, the number to join us. You can call or text that same number. Email us live at knoxradio.com. We're talking about vaping and the FDA's decision to begin to act. So they're going to start rolling out regulation. Um, da- uh, daily vape. In 2020, the Food and Drug Administration initiated a requirement that all e-cigarette products apply for and receive regulatory approval in order to remain on the market. A bit of time lag for the enforcement was permitted as the FDA worked through those applications. Do you want to guess how many applications they received? Eight million. Eight million applications for vaping products that they're now going to process through. So to Terry's point, if you want, if this is the biggest thing that you want your government dealing with, fine, hire a bunch of government workers to go through 8 million applications and decide which ones are going to be on the market and which ones aren't going to be on the market. And Oh, by the way, For any of the ones that you're thinking of denying, you should know that the tobacco industry has a lot of money. So they're not going to take no lightly and they're not going to take no laying down. They're going to fight tooth and nail to every single no. So the ones that you do want to ban, you better be darn sure that you are standing on absolute concrete, solid legal ground. Because when you go to court and you will go to court for every one of those no's, you're going to have to justify upwards, downwards, left and sideways that this is the only option for and this is why this has to be banned. And you'll have to make that argument in the face of other products being legal. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money to spend. And I'm unclear as to what the goal is, because, again, the goal here is not to protect children. It's already illegal. 775-5559, the number to join us. You're on KNOX. Good morning. Thank you, Noah. I, uh, I would argue that the, to simplify this, we have to start with the addictive substance, which is the nicotine. Okay. And the problem they're having with vaping is the levels of the nicotine. So in its simplistic form, that's, that's where this conversation needs to start. If you're going to start regulating, we need to regulate the nicotine, okay. not the product. I see. So it doesn't matter how you consume it. The point is that it's addictive. And vaping then, from that standpoint, is actually is potentially worse because the nicotine levels Way are higher. Way more harmful. Way more harmful. And it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful addictive substance. If I understand addiction, it is the most addictive. It's one of the most addictive drugs. It's one of the most addictive because of its, uh, you know, because of its half-life and how fast it spikes. Any drug that spikes high and drops off fast Mm -hmm. is going to be more addictive, and so is any drug that you inhale. Because that's the fastest route to get into your bloodstream. Believe it or not, even even, even faster than intravenous use. Really? Today I learned. Is to be inhaled. And the levels of nicotine in these vaping products is through the roof. So what would you like to see? So first of all, do you think that there is a danger to consenting adults? Do you think that there is a reason that the FDA should step in? Take kids out of it for just a second. Do you think that there is a danger to adults and that there is room for the FDA to step in and and solve something? You know, I mean, I really... I hate to admit it, but I'm on the side of government intervention is, is it rarely helps in situations like this. Mm-hmm. You know, however, my, my focus would be on the prevention of teens getting either. Okay. 
you know, that's that's the problem is is catch this before the habit is developed. Okay, that makes sense. And then once and then if you can solve that problem, what you're doing is you're cutting off the head of the snake. So you can let consenting adults do it if they want to. We're just going to teach adults to make wise decisions is essentially what you're getting at. Early intervention is always best. And, I mean, you're never going to you're, you're never gonna solve the problem sure. with this or with drug addiction mm-hmm. or with any harmful substance. But to compare two negatives, such as tobacco and vaping, mm-hmm. you know, you, it puts you it, – it, it narrows your conversation. Because, they're, okay. they're, you know, that's like saying which is, which is worse, stepping in a mud hole or stepping in a bucket of oil. Yeah. You, you Apples know, and oranges. It, yeah, I see it, what you're saying. The solution, the solutions don't go very far. But the way I see it is, like I said in my initial, you know, argument is that the problem with all of these, you know, comes down to the drug itself, and how that that's the that's the part, if anything, that the FDA should focus on as far as the amounts of nicotine. In fact, I would suggest that they wanted to do something a substantive that they would reduce the nicotine levels and force these cigarette companies to slowly start to reduce the, the nicotine out of what they put in these cigarettes. I like that. But they certainly could do it in the vape, vapes because it's 10 times more 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 toxin and and nicotine is a toxin. Mm-hmm. And I mean it's you're creating a bunch of uh, well let's just call it what it is. You're creating a bunch of drug addicts. Well said, sir. Or early so. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think there I think there's some validity to it. I want to dig into what specific measures the government might take or the FDA might take to actually address those concerns. Like, how does that work? Do they just set blanketly say, hey, you can only have this much nicotine in a product? I'm interested in how that might work. The discussion continues next on Critical Thought. Radio 1310 KNOX 107.9, 103.3 FM. Welcome back. 1125, the phone number 775-5559. We're talking about vaping and the FDA's decision to review 8 million applications and decide what vaping products, if any, they want to pull from the market. 775-5559, you're on KNOX. Good morning. Hello? Oh, that's Hello? Sorry. Hi there. No worries. I, I I didn't hit a little switch. <laughs> no worries. No worries. <laughs> anyway, so you're talking about the whole vaping thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, so this is kind of where it gets a little interesting. So you want to control the amount of nicotine or the amount of vape or whatever that's in those substances, right? Okay. The vape or the, or the nicotine. Right. And I could maybe be on board with that, but let's turn that around for just a second. Those are both legal substances, right? So do we want to start controlling the amount of alcohol that's in a liquor bottle? Well, do we want to start yeah. controlling the amount of caffeine that goes into people's coffee? Mm-hmm. Do we want to start controlling the amount of this and this and this that are all legal Substances. Mm-hmm. The very fine line that you start to walk when 
when you do that. Well, and who gets to make that decision, right? What if the if the exactly. FDA comes out and says this is how much nicotine should be in a vaping cartridge? Well, what if I disagree? What if I think there should be twice that much and I want twice as much? Then what? Now you're going to tell me I can't put that much nicotine in my body or I have to buy two vape cartridges to get the amount of nicotine that I I mean, who gets to make that decision and based on what? Because I guarantee that if you told somebody that they could only have this much caffeine in their coffee, they'd go ballistic. Yeah. And that's what caffeine is absolutely a drug. So caffeine is more of a drug, more addictive than a drug, than any of the other drugs that we have so far listed. Mm, More addictive than caffeine, really? Or, excuse me, nicotine, you would say? It's not more addictive. Okay. Well, I I mean, it could be. It's, it's it's more commonly used, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah more we'll, prevalent. Yeah, I see that. We'll, we'll put it out there. It's more prevalent. Yeah, yeah, okay. Than it is nicotine. Yeah, I, I appreciate the call. I, I think you're right about that. I think that people are, you know, it's it really, it comes down to this, right? It comes down to, it's okay for me, but not for you. If it's my personal pleasure, because I like a cup of coffee every morning, it's easy for me to sit here and say, yeah, well, there's anybody that's doing nicotine, that's that's not good. And it's easy for people that are doing nicotine to look over and say, yeah, anybody that's voting for recreational marijuana. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to the exact same principle. And the principle is, Who gets to make the final call on what a human being puts into their body? And that's the part of this discussion. That's my instant. That's my knee jerk reaction. When I read this 14.1% of high school students say they vape. Okay. Well, 14.1% of high school students are breaking the law and you should just enforce existing law. Problem solved. Okay. Now moving on when you want to get to what you do about adults, the question becomes what on earth makes you think or makes people desire that they can decide from on high, here is what's best for everybody else. Everybody wants to dictate what the solution is, and then they want everybody else that is affected by that decision to have to suffer through it. I might turn the tables a little bit and ask, what if you were required to get the people who would be affected by the law to sign off on the law? Because this is what distinguishes a zero liability you know, influencer from somebody that's actually affected by it. It's easy if you're not a vape user to say, oh, let's limit the amount of nicotine. It's easy if you're a, a coffee drinker to say, hey, we should limit that drug over there. It's much more difficult if you have to get the people that are the end consumer of the products, not the 14.1% of high school students, but the consenting adults that wish to put something into their body. Whatever measure we want to pass or whatever thing we're looking at doing, should it not have to pass their sniff test? Excuse the pun. Because they're ultimately the people affected by that law. So shouldn't they be the ones deciding what they want to put into their body? And if some regulation is to be had, shouldn't they get some input on it? Food for thought. We'll take the break here. Make a stop in the KNOX newsroom. Get the latest from Doug Barrett and continue next. This is Critical Thought on KNOX. Thanks for listening to Critical Thought. Download the show notes at criticalthought.show. The content from this episode was taken from the live radio show, which airs every weekday from 9 a.m. to noon on Newstalk 1310 KNOX. Streamed online at knoxradio.com.